Game Cool Books, Episode 11, The Work You Have to Do. Welcome back, this is Wesley Schantz. Chapter 8, Frustration. This is a brief chapter, like Chapter 6 was, The Throwing Nets. And like it, this one gets us through a kind of transition. But in time, rather than space, through the three days between the first and second ropings. In a way... Even less happens in it than in that one night Lyra spent wandering through London. More than in most, though, it takes us into meditations on storytelling and the uses it can be put towards. Here we see Lyra and the Egyptians telling stories to pass the time, to make sense of themselves, to relate to other people, and to orient together towards a larger goal. But alongside noticing the elaboration, invention, and artful variation, Eliciting fascination in the story itself seems to be the effect Pullman especially delights in, and so I hope we'll accomplish some of that as well. He likes telling the story of telling the story of the Odyssey to his kids. One good version of it is in Laura Miller's New Yorker article, Far From Narnia. Pullman refined his own storytelling gifts orally by recounting versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey to his middle school students. He estimates that he's told each epic at least 30 times. Indeed, he once caused a scene in a restaurant when he was retelling the Odyssey to his son Tom, then about five years old. Every time we went out to dinner, I'd tell it to him in serialized form while we waited for our food to come, he said. I'd just gotten to that part where Odysseus has come back home in disguise as an old beggar. Penelope has taken Odysseus' old bow down and told the suitors that she'll marry whoever can string it. They all try, but none of them can do it. Then Odysseus picks it up, and he feels it all over to make sure it's still good, which it is. And then in one move, he strings it. Of course, we know what's going to happen next. He's going to use it to kill the suitors. But just before that, he plucks it just once to hear the tone. Tom was so taken with the tension of the moment that he bit a piece out of his water glass. The waitress who was coming toward us with our food saw him do it, and she was so startled that she dropped her tray. There was food everywhere. It was chaos. Though she chomped, uh, she hasn't chomped down on any uh, glasses yet, uh, Lyra is quite as enthralled by the story she's just heard and is interested in retelling it in her own way. Lyra had to adjust to her new sense of her own story, and that couldn't be done in a day. To see Lord Asriel as her father was one thing, but to accept Mrs. Coulter as her mother was nowhere near so easy. A couple of months ago she would have rejoiced, of course, and she knew that too and felt confused. But, being Lyra, she didn't fret about it for long, for there was the Fen town to explore, and many Egyptian children to amaze. Before the three days were up, she was an expert with a punt, in her eyes at least, and she'd gathered a gang of urchins about her with tales of her mighty father so unjustly made captive. The narrator here helps cue us to the sorts of questions we might want to ask after the last chapter, and gives us a bit of time in which to do so in this one. We're told it's okay if it takes time to adjust to and accept things we learn from stories, which is good since I'm still working through this one 20 years later. 
and it's okay to be confused so long as we get on with being ourselves meanwhile. And in Lyra's case, that's not for long. Being Lyra. As with John Fah's explanation for Lord Azriel's behavior, the narrator's employing here the argument from ethos, from character, to get Lyra moving again and us with her. The adjustment is all very well, but it will mostly take place below the surface and slowly over the course of the series. Much more immediately, what we get is the continuity, the delightful familiarity by now of Lyra's character. You might also note that word being is used in an idiomatic way here, nearly like an absolute construction in Greek, which Pullman, the bard and student and teacher of grammar, would be well aware of. I noticed it mainly because of something strange in that next sentence. So, you get, but being Lyra, she didn't fret about it for long, for there was the fen town to explore and many children Egyptian children to amaze. So besides Lyra's nominal expertise with a punt, besides her adroitness at coming to a new place and quickly impressing the children there, not for the last time, there's the grammar of that sentence. There was, is strictly speaking, a singular verb here, but it encompasses what looks like plural objects, the town, and the many children. It's not a grammatical error, I don't think, so much as an interesting choice, drawing attention to the coherence of these objects as somehow singular, and helping the verb being there stand out a bit. I won't go so far as to say anything too technical about it, but I just note that in German and continental philosophy, that's literally Dasein, the existential being there of the place and people which make them what they are. That's what draws Lyra out of her pickle about realizing how little she knew, especially about her mom, and into her own fantastic storytelling endeavors. And then one evening, the Turkish ambassador was a guest at Jordan for dinner, and he was under orders from the sultan himself to kill my father, right? And he had a ring on his finger with a hollow stone full of poison. And when the wine come round, he made as if to reach across my father's glass, and he sprinkled the poison in. It was done so quick that no one else saw him, but what sort of poison? demanded a thin-faced girl. Poison out of a special Turkish serpent, Lyra invented what they catch by playing a pipe to lure out, and then they throw it a sponge soaked in honey, and the serpent bites it and can't get his fangs free, and they catch it and milk the venom out of it. Anyway, my father's seen what the Turk done, and he says, Gentlemen, I want to propose a toast of friendship between Jordan College and the College of Izmir, which was the college the Turkish ambassador belonged to, and to show our willingness to be friends, he says, we'll swap glasses and drink each other's wine. And the ambassador was in a fix then, because he couldn't refuse to drink without giving deadly insult. And he couldn't drink it because he knew it was poisoned. He went pale, and he fainted right away at the table. And when he come round, they was all sitting there, waiting and looking at him. And then he had to either drink the poison or own up. So what did he do? He drunk it. 
It took him five whole minutes to die, and he was in torment all the time. Did you see it happen? No, cause girls ain't allowed at the high table, but I seen his body afterwards when they laid him out. His skin was all withered like an old apple, and his eyes were starting from his head. In fact, they had to push him back in the sockets, and so on. Amidst a number of tantalizing details, the Turk, the poison in the wine, the terrible choice, and that girls ain't allowed, we see Lyra drawing out the suspense almost painfully. And that seems to be what this chapter is for, too. A kind of interlude, a bit of being and time, which serve as obstacles to the too smooth progress and give the story added spice and texture. The narrator spares us further details with the dry and so on. But these sensational, grotesque tales not only recall the head of Stanislaus Grumman, they are well represented in Pullman's other works, such as the Sally Lockhart books. In fact, many details of Lyra's exemplary story might end up reflecting shiny bits and pieces of the story here, both what's come before, the poisoned wine, of course, but also John Faw's remark about having to make terrible choices, and also foreshadowing what's to come, little clairvoyant details like the Turk, and in the thematic resonance of storytelling generally. What about those images of the snake biting into the honeyed sponge, or the reversal by which the poisoner is hoisted on his own petard? I think we could see in due course how such metaphors and reversals play into this adventure. It would not be going too far to suggest that any part of this book could represent a microcosm of the whole. Certainly, any of the stories nested within it, Scheherazade-like, somehow are. Meanwhile, around the edges of the Fen country, the police were knocking at doors, searching attics and outhouses, inspecting papers, and interrogating everyone who claimed to have seen a blonde little girl. And in Oxford, the search was even fiercer. Jordan College was scoured from the dustiest box room to the darkest cellar, and so were Gabriel and St. Michael's, till the heads of all the colleges issued a joint protest asserting their ancient rights. The only notion Lyra had of the search for her was the incessant drone of the gas engines of airships crisscrossing the skies. They weren't visible because the clouds were low, and by statute airships had to keep a certain height above Fen Country. But who knew what cunning spy devices they might carry? Best to keep under cover when she heard them, or wear the oilskin sou'wester over her bright, distinctive hair. The search in Oxford here is reminiscent of Lyra's playful explorations. And the assertion of rights looks ahead to the political component of John Faw's speeches. The drone of airships, possibility of spy devices, both look back to Mrs. Coulter as well as forward to the next chapter, The Spies. And the pursuit of which Lyra has been only dimly aware is coming closer. We might think of that soporific quality of the cedar wood under the bunk, like the innocence that she is still steeped in, like the low clouds over the fens, but little by little, peeling the clouds and dreams away and coming closer to the truth. 
and she questioned Ma Costa about every detail of the story of her birth. She wove the details into a mental tapestry even clearer and sharper than the stories she made up, and lived over and over again the flight from the cottage, the concealment in the closet, the harsh-voiced challenge, the clash of swords. Swords? Great God, girl, you dreaming? Ma Costa said. So Lyra keeps weaving these true stories as well as the made-up ones. And Ma's incredulous swords picks up from the narrator's close-up on Lyra's imagination. It has a humorous effect. We might be forgiven for imagining, like Lyra, a different sort of weapon, as we haven't seen evidence of firearms so far in the story. The realism asserted here in the midst of the sensational is probably another layer of the joke. Yet the situation is dire. It's softened in Ma's telling with her blow-by-blow -blow account and quotes from Lord Asriel and with her surprise that Lyra doesn't remember until she confabulates. We might ask to what extent memory is a story we tell ourselves, consciously or not even when the material it deals with is not quite so traumatic, or at least dramatic, as this. The epistemological questions this raises, again, are superseded by the story's emphasis on character and action, and rightly so. Then he says, cool as paint, come out, Mrs. Costa, and bring the baby because you were setting up such a howl, you and that demon both, and he took you up and dandled you, and sat you on his shoulders, walking up and down in high good humor with the dead man at his feet, and called for wine and bade me swab the floor. By the end of the fourth repetition of the story, Lyra was perfectly convinced she did remember it, and even volunteered details of the color of Mr. Coulter's coat, and the cloaks and furs hanging in the closet. Ma Costa laughed. That simile about how Azriel's cool as paint should be a little chilling. So Lyra's story of him being a murderer, which makes it one way or another into all her stories about him, turns out to be based in fact. How to Be Cool is the title of one of the many books of Pullman's I have not read. Alas, or I might cite something more specific from it here. At any rate, the dry comments that we've seen from Azriel and set up by the narrator mingle with passion and high good humor as he holds the baby and calls for wine, wine again. And Lyra's memory invention about the colors of cloaks in the closet seems like an element borrowed from hiding there in the retiring room. It's a further interesting echo of the Narnia books, of course, wherein the Pevensey kids are sent to the country in the first place so they'll be safe from the Blitz, as Lyra is sheltering in the closet from her mother's husband's fury. Besides these sorts of stories told aloud, we also get some very important indications of the silent reading of the alethiometer, which Lyra is beginning to be able to do.
and whenever she was alone, Lyra took out the alethiometer and pored over it like a lover with a picture of the beloved. So each image had several meanings, did it? Why shouldn't she work them out? Wasn't she Lord Asriel's daughter? Remembering what Farda Quorum had said, she tried to focus her mind on three symbols taken at random, and clicked the hands around to point at them, and found that if she held the alethiometer just so in her palms and gazed at it in a particular lazy way, as she thought of it, the needle, the long needle, would begin to move more purposefully. Instead of its wayward divagations around the dial, it swung smoothly from one picture to another. Sometimes it would pause at three, sometimes two, sometimes five or more, and although she understood nothing of it, she gained a deep, calm enjoyment from it, unlike anything she'd known. Pantalaimon would crouch over the dial, sometimes as a cat, sometimes as a mouse, swinging his head round after the needle, and once or twice the two of them shared a glimpse of meaning that felt as if a shaft of sunlight had struck through clouds to light up a majestic line of great hills in the distance, something far beyond and never suspected, and Lyra thrilled at those times with the same deep thrill she'd felt all her life on hearing the word north. Like a lover with a picture of the beloved is a simile we might think of at the end of the series. And the source of her determination, at least partly in the story she now tells herself, seeing herself as the daughter of Lord Asriel. She need not articulate it yet, though she will begin to do so soon, beyond thinking of it as a particular lazy way. This reading brings not only a deep, calm enjoyment, that one pole of how to be cool, we might say, but also a thrill, a glimpse of meaning shared with Pan as predator and prey, actively and passively participating. Here, I think of that description of Farda Coram's smile in the previous chapter, but also of that quintessential romantic painting the Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog by Caspar David Friedrich. That range in meaning from cool as aloof to cool as inspiring and invigorating seems informed by those romantic images and qualities of bravery, determination, meaningfulness. So that if we think Lyra is cool and want to relate to her, to be her friend and accompany her on adventures, we see how one way is by learning to read. We see how reading can feel cool. It's an aesthetic impression, an inward one, but also the sharing of it, and with critical effects on action and decision. We'll see, beginning with the next chapter. Soon enough then, but not immediately, we come to the second roping. The luck they had arriving there the very day of the first, or the luck of Lyra meeting the Egyptians in the first place, had perhaps been mitigated by this more realistic lapse of time. Her launching upon the adventure similarly will be brought to an abrupt halt here, at least momentarily, however purposeful she may be now after her own wayward divagations. We saw how Ma Costa 
can tell stories herself this time to go with her silence before. And before, we saw how John Fa told stories. But now we'll see how he can stop the talking, as he'll stop Lyra's momentum later. Lyra and the Costas got there in time to sit at the front, and as soon as the flickering lights showed that the place was crammed, John Fa and Farakorum came out on the platform and sat behind the table. John Fa didn't have to make a sign for silence. He just put his great hands flat on the table and looked at the people below, and the hubbub died. Well, he said, you done what I asked, and better than I hoped. I'm a-going to call on the heads of the six families now to come up here and give over their gold and recount their promises. Nicholas Rokeby, you come first. John Fah's classroom management and the narrator's clock management here seem closely related. And together with our reaction to them, and Lyra's and the other characters in the audience, we get the combination which gives the chapter its title, Frustration. Our response to that emotion, in turn, will take us into the next part of the story. So, along with these images of storytelling and listening, we actually get the hint of writing, too. We see Fodder Quorum making notes. A couple other details to notice here. The gold is not measured publicly, but the number of men from each of the families is. And again, Tony is singled out as kind of representative of the volunteers. The muster insistently reminds me of Tolkien, the word muster, that is, and the Rohirrim. Um, there's even a kind of wimpy worm tongue, or to go back to Homer, a Thersites in the crowd. Once John Faw lays out the plan and delegates the roles among the heads of the six families, we see another way in which authority works among the Egyptians. Besides his sharing it among the other hereditary leaders, embodiments of that custom he appeals to, he then opens the floor to anyone to speak and respond. Thus, we see how custom can contain within itself the seeds of its adaptation, the very sort of adjustment Lyra has been having to make. It's language, free speech, making room for successive approximations of and approaches to the truth. As differing perspectives and stories are sounded, there's a series of five main responses which arise, plus Lyra's after the closing bell. Two of them come up as John Faw's talking, and three more after he formally opens the floor. The first question is always a good one. Yes, Dirk Fries? A man stood up and said, Lord Fa, do you know why they captured them kids? And the answer's a good one, too. We heard it's a theological matter. They're making an experiment, but what nature it is we don't know. To tell you all the truth, we don't even know whether any harm is a-coming to them. But whatever it is, good or bad, they got no right to reach out by night and pluck little children out the hearts of their families. The truth is we don't know. 
that they have no right to. In the absence of more information, the Egyptian king recurs to a bedrock morality, cutting across any possible theological or other reason. Children should not be taken from their parents. Besides noting the relevance for hot-button immigration disputes we're seeing today, we should also notice that this is precisely counter to the hard-line, deep, dogmatic faith by which anything, even child sacrifice, must be undertaken if God bids it. See Kierkegaard's discussion in Fear and Trembling for a harrowing consideration of the implications of such a faith. Seriously deep stuff, well worth reading. But with the caveat that the church and God are distinct, sharply so for Kierkegaard as for Pullman, I think. Still, better understanding the adversary's intentions will be part of the goal of the spies, and part of what Lyra will come to learn from the alethiometer. The next question comes from Va Raymond von Garrett again. Yes, Raymond von Garrett. The man who'd spoken at the first meeting stood up and said, That child, Lord Fa, the one you spoke of as being sought, the one as is sitting in the front row now, I heard as all the folk living round the edge of the fens is having their houses turned upside down on her account. I heard there's a move in Parliament this very day to rescind our ancient privileges on account of this child. Yes, friends, he said, over the babble of shocked whispers. They're going to pass a law doing away with our right to free movement in and out the fence. Now, Lord Fa, what we want to know is this. Who is this child on account of which we might come to such a pass? She ain't Egyptian child, not as I heard. How comes it that a landloper child can put us all in danger? Lyra looked up at John Fa's massive frame. Her heart was thumping so much she could hardly hear the first words of his reply. Now spell it out, Raymond. Don't be shy, he said. You want us to give this child up to them she's a fleeing from, is that right? So, Fa demolishes the challenge by exposing its implicature and its implier and answering directly. Now spell it out. If Raymond appeals to populism, John does so no less, but he again calls the Egyptians to their better rather than to their baser instincts. We get more of Lyra's world filled in here. Get a curious echo from Lyra's story of the Turk, as well as the political argument countered directly by references to history. He mentions free passage over Lord Asriel's lands. He mentions a watercourse bill that he sponsored in Parliament. And we get the beginning of a context for the time period, too, with a reference to the floods of 53. I don't think this can be the same as the flood which takes place in La Belle Sauvage, which again modifies and fills in the story of Lyra's infancy. This flood should have been a good deal earlier. The flood of 53, that is, should have been a good deal earlier than the floods described in La Belle Sauvage. It would have been when, uh, 53 would have been when Azrael was a, a youth. And John Fa rounds off his answer by again inviting a rebuttal. He says, 
Is that right, Raymond? Stand up and answer, man. But Raymond von Garrett had sunk to his seat, and nothing would make him stand. A low hiss of disapproval sounded through the great hall, and Lyra felt the shame he must be feeling, as well as a deep glow of pride in her brave father. Again, we, like Lyra, feel it, and the glow of pride with it, that shame and pride, for we are supporting her. After John Faw opens the floor, the first question is about taking women. Now I've made my dispositions according to custom, and if any man or woman seeks to disagree, they may do so freely. After a moment, a woman stood up. Lord Fa, ain't you taken, ain't you a taken any women on this expedition to look after them kids once you found them? No, no. We shall have little space as it is, and any kids we free will be better off in our care than where they've been. But supposing you find out that you can't rescue them without some women in disguise as guards or nurses or whatever. Well, I hadn't thought of that, John Faw admitted. We'll consider that most carefully when we retire into the parley room. You have my promise. To me, this is like uh, the woman thinking more like a storyteller or a spy than John Faw. The disguise of Mr. Toad as a laundress to escape from jail in the wind in the willows comes to mind. But so does Joan of Arc. Jaffa promises to consider it carefully. Continuing then this line of thinking, thinking like a storyteller, another Egyptian asks if rescuing Lord Asriel is part of the plan. As we saw at the end of chapter 6, it is part of Lyra's plan, and then her decision to trust the Egyptians fully is marked by her unfolding it, as well as the alethiometer in chapter 7. Here, the problem of practicality, such a theme in this chapter, asserts itself again, albeit in the context of dealing with armored bears. In short, they will not be going out of their way to free Lord Asriel we might begin to wonder if the story will have room and resources to accomplish both these goals, rescuing the kids and rescuing Lord Asriel. And then there's more. Another woman stood up. Lord Fa, we don't know what them gobblers might have been doing to our children. We all heard rumors and stories of fearful things. We hear about children with no heads or about children cut in half and sewn together or about things too awful to mention. I'm truly sorry to distress anyone, but we all heard this kind of thing, and I want to get it out in the open. Now, in case you find anything of that awful kind, Lord Fa, I hope you're going to take powerful revenge. I hope you ain't going to let thoughts of mercy and gentleness hold your hand from striking and striking hard and delivering a mighty blow to the heart of that infernal wickedness. And I'm sure I speak for any mother as has lost a child to the gobblers. Here, the final reply to the plan brings out another tension in the story, another aspect of the Egyptians' intentions and Pullman's into the open. 
There was a loud murmur of agreement as she sat down. Heads were nodding all over the Zal. Jean Fa waited for silence and said, Nothing will hold my hand, Margaret, save only judgment. If I stay my hand in the north, it will only be to strike the harder in the south. To strike a day too soon is as bad as striking a hundred miles off. To be sure, there's a warm passion behind what you say. But if you give in to that passion, friends, you're doing what I always warned you again. You're placing the satisfaction of your own feelings above the work you have to do. Our work here is first rescue, then punishment, and end gratification for upset feelings. Our feelings don't matter. If we rescue the kids, but we can't punish the gobblers, we've done the main task. But if we aim to punish the gobblers first, and by doing so lose the chance of rescuing the kids, we've failed. But be assured of this, Margaret. When the time comes to punish, we shall strike such a blow as will make their hearts faint and fearful. We shall strike the strength out of them. We shall leave them ruined and wasted, broken and shattered, torn in a thousand pieces and scattered to the four winds. Don't you worry that John Fa's heart is too soft to strike a blow when the time comes. And the time will come under judgment, not under passion. As with Lyra's over-determined flight from Mrs. Coulter, there's a tension in the story's structure that comes to the fore here again in John Fa's answer. He speaks of judgment, not mercy, and of giving in to passion and feelings as being below the work which has to come first. First rescue, then punishment. Our feelings don't matter. It's reminiscent of the rhetoric of Lincoln with its biblical cadences and classical antitheses, contemplating how this all might map onto the narrator's purpose in telling the story would go a long way, I think, to stimulating our awareness of the tensions at play within it, particularly in the third book. Many readers detect the vengeful element slipping the reins of the story. But from the start, the story speaks with voices within it of its dedication to the work it has to do, of rescuing kids not punishing adults. Among the writers who come to mind as speaking powerfully to this sense of the story's primary importance are, of course, Tolkien and Lewis, each in his own way, but also Saint Exupery, who had a near mystical belief in responsibility to one's work. Is there anyone else who wants to speak? Speak if you will. But no one did, and presently John Fa reached for the closing bell and rang it hard and loud, swinging it high and shaking the peals out of it so that they filled the hall and rang the rafters. So the bell peals ring the rafters like John Fa's closing speech and like the roar at the first roping. Now we're going to pass into another phase of this story and with it of our self-consciousness in Lyra's, as we did by the tolling of the dinner bell back in Jordan at the end of chapter 3, or the ringing of the wine glass for that matter. 
That same question Pan was wondering about then on the rooftop. What do they do to the kids? Has just been raised again, and Lyra's anxiety, which she took out on the kitchen staff before, will stir her into action once again now. Lyra was a little disappointed. Didn't they want her there too? But Tony laughed. <laughs> they got plans to make, he said. You done your part, Lyra? Now it's for John Fawn the council. But I ain't done nothing yet, Lyra protested as she followed the others reluctantly out of the hall and down the cobbled road toward the jetty. All I done was run away from Mrs. Coulter. That's just the beginning. I want to go north. Tell you what, said Tony. I'll bring you back a walrus tooth. That's what I'll do. Lyra scowled. For his part, Pantaliman occupied himself by making monkey faces at Tony's demon. He closed her tawny eyes in disdain. Lyra drifted to the jetty and hung about with her new companions, dangling lanterns on strings over the black water to attract the goggle-eyed fishes, who swam slowly up to be lunged at with sharp sticks and mist. So there's another echo there of uh, Tony's promise the same as Lord Asriel's, to bring Lyra back a walrus tooth. Pan's monkey faces might recall Mrs. Coulter's demon, suggesting once again how conflicted Lyra must still be feeling to have to think of her as her mother. And in the lantern fishing, we, uh, we see an echo of something else. It's along with his butterfly soup analogy in the autobiographical sketch and somewhat opposed to his stories of making up stories aloud and hoping they would come out. There's another of Pullman's ways of talking about writing, where he compares it to night fishing. This is in his Isis lecture, where he's talking about education. They think the way to write a story is to spend 15 minutes planning and by the way, fill in the planning format to show that you've planned it properly, and then spend 45 minutes writing the story according to your plan, and then you've done it. That doesn't feel to me like the way to write a story. Writing a story feels to me like fishing in a boat at night. The sea is much bigger than you are, and the light of your little lamp doesn't show you very much of it. You hope it'll attract some curious fish, but perhaps you'll sit here all night long and not get a bite. And all around you is silence and plenty of time. You're in a calm state of mind, not asleep, not at all sleepy, but calm and relaxed and attentive. Not the sort of heavy stupor you fall into after several hours television, but the sort of unharassed awareness that we achieve when we're truly absorbed. True, calm, intense, relaxed attention. Are you going to find a fish? Well, there are things you can do to improve your chances. With every voyage, you learn a little more about the bait these fish like, and you're practiced enough to wait for a twitch on the line and not snatch at it too soon. And you've discovered that there are some areas empty of fish, and others where they are plentiful. Again, I can't recommend enough reading some of Tol uh, Pul Pullman's essays on writing uh, and education. Uh, so what might it mean here for Lyra to miss the fish is that she hasn't yet found her way forward on this story, on this adventure. And this bootless effort is reinforced with the image of the windows 
So she walked, uh, sorry, but her mind was on John Fa in the parley room. Before long, she slipped away up the cobbles again to the Zal. There was a light in the parley room window. It was too high to look through, but she could hear a low rumble of voices inside. So she walked up to the door and knocked on it firmly five times. The voices stopped. A chair scraped across the floor, and the door opened, spilling warm naphtha light out on the damp step. So we get five firm knocks on the door and five syllables. I want to come north, Lyra said, so they could all hear it. We remember that the significance of reading the alethiometer, the mystery of what to do with it, and of what happens to the kids, and of how to free Lord Asriel, all come back to this idea of north. All the story's tensions can be resolved again in Lyra's character, her development, her relationship to her demon, and our relationship to them. The other half of that pentameter line, rather than the five knocks, might be our answer, and we're going to. Lyra lays out her intention, her reasons, but surely none of them go as deep as her powerful curiosity, her felt call to go north. We might ask, as we're going along, how far those reasons and intentions are sustained and borne out by the story. And in Fa's reply, again, he calls her to her task, her work. Lyra, there ain't no question of taking you into danger, so don't delude yourself, child. Stay here and help Ma Costa and keep safe. That's what you got to do. But he betrays his lack of imagination, for her work will turn out to be quite different. But I'm learning how to read the alethiometer, too. It's coming clearer every day. You're bound to need that, bound to. He shook his head. He refers wryly also to her mother's deceit, touching a sore spot. And his demon's outspread wings serve as a reminder too, gentle as it may be, of the manners Lyra so painfully learned at Mrs. Coulter's hands. Lyra's attempt to get around the meeting and custom by nepotism and force of character has so far been quashed. Her reply to John Fa's plan is too little too late. And if, as she vows at the end of the chapter, we will go, she said to Pantalaimon, let him try to stop us. We will. It will take a bit of deus ex machina. But, if so, it's one she has prepared for. And she's ready to seize, nightfish-like, when it arrives. So let's head out to recess, then, and see how we can transform this week's frustration to determination. That's a key word in one of my favorite recent games, Undertale. You're reminded of it each time you reach a save point, though what you take it to mean might depend on how you're playing the game. Because part of what makes Undertale so fascinating is that it prompts you to ask that question about why you're playing. 
what your intention is with respect to this adventure. And frustration, of course, will be a familiar emotion to anyone who's played video games at all, or dealt much with technology or games of any kind. Whether it be learning to parse a sentence in a new language, figuring out a new phone, trying to learn a serve in tennis, or trying to beat a boss, or keep a streak going in a video game or app, a certain amount of frustration will be inevitable, and that seems to be the price we pay for determination, for striving for things, for telling ourselves stories interesting enough for us to care about the outcome. There are a few ways we might explore some of this in the imaginary video game adaptation for this chapter. Lyra will be free to explore the Fen Town, and though the text is not explicit about this, my sense is that she makes the most of her freedom, running about and causing a certain amount of frustration for the Egyptians around her. That she doesn't do so enough to make it into the book might be a testament to how well-mannered she actually is becoming by this point. So instead of her antics being physical thefts and commotions like they were in Oxford, now they're mostly sublimated into the stories she tells to amaze the Egyptian kids. For the purposes of the game, however, it might be interesting to highlight more of the frustration Lyra causes by her presence and her demand for attention in this chapter, and not just the frustration she feels at the end. After all, there ought to be at least a few other Egyptians of Raymond von Garrett's outlook disposed to feel mistrust or outright antipathy towards this landloper in their midst, and annoyed by the drone of airships, and concerned for their privacy and their ancestral rights, and not amused by Lyra's success at ingratiating herself with their kids and their leaders equally. Accordingly, the player should not only get to play through the stories Lyra tells, playing there as Lord Asriel, of her tall tales, even as they confabulate with her, making them up as they go along, inventing details to answer the doubtful interruptions of the listeners. But we should get to play as Lyra, too, running amok in the floating city around the Zal, battling and retreating from unfriendly factions of older kids and grown-ups, making discoveries and making trouble, and then making up for them as best we can. We might also explore questions about the Egyptians, which aren't answered in the book, lying outside the scope of Lyra's story, but tantalizingly hinted at. I'd propose a side quest at this point concerning the parentage of the Costas, in which we find out who the father of Billy and Tony is, how Kareem is related to them, and most importantly, what Ma Costa's given name is. It would make an interesting foil for the aspects of Lyra's background we've recently learned, and it would supply another reason for exploring the Fentown, besides Lyra's lust for admirers and distraction for her troubles. We'd fill in Tony's character a bit more, too. And I wouldn't be surprised if we dug a little deeper into the Egyptian mythology in the process, and stirred up some smuggling networks, love triangles, and feuds among the narrow boats. Besides getting better at reading the alethiometer, the night fishing minigame cries out for inclusion at this point. For whatever reason, 
Fishing video games and mini games have a long and storied tradition. Shigesato Itoi, creative mastermind behind Earthbound, is also responsible for a series of bass fishing games. And in every Zelda, Pokemon, and Animal Crossing, you're bound to do a bit of fishing sooner or later. In our Golden Compass game, rather than using a rod, Lyra will be equipped with stones and sticks to throw or lunge with into the water. And rather than baits and bobbers, you'll lure the goggle-eyed fish with lanterns. Obviously, upon achieving a certain rather impressive and or embarrassing amount of success at catching them, Pan will earn some special new transformations, such as an eel, an electric eel, or a fish with a face like a withered apple and its eyes practically bulging out of its head, and so on. I hope you've enjoyed that vicarious shame and pride, frustration and determination, and that you'll persevere in spite of John Fa with his kindness and his crow, and you'll join me again next week for a discussion of Chapter 9, The Spies. Until then, take care.